faints better when I'm on my feet and moving around. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and give this a shot. Um, if you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, um, talking to uh, Peter Herndon at the break time and realizing that it's been two and a half years since we started the, uh, the study in the book of Acts. So we've been in, we've been in Acts for a, a long time. Um, it's really been a, a great study. It forced me to look at, at uh, portions of scripture that I don't necessarily um, dig into as much as maybe I should on a regular basis. Um, but we're, uh, we're now on the last chapter, um, and I'm going to go ahead and read the first 16 verses of, uh, the book of Acts. I don't know if we'll get to all 16 verses this morning, um, but, uh, we'll see where the Lord leads. So Acts chapter 21, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 28 and verse 1. And when they were escaped, they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hanging on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. But uh, and he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever, and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the island, whose sign was Castor and Pollux, and landed at Syracuse, and landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. And from thence we fetched a compass and came to Regium. And after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and, three, and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage and when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So may the Lord uh, bless the reading of his, of his word, and uh, let's just open again in a word of prayer. Our Lord, uh, we just come before you, uh, thankful for your word, which we can read and which we can study. Um, your word is truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just open it to us this morning and that we would learn from it. Lord, again, as has already been lifted to you this morning, that we would be doers of the word and not uh, just hearers, not taking in head knowledge, but, uh, Lord, that your word would have an impact upon our lives and upon the way we live. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, put your hand upon me this morning, that you would fill me with your spirit, 
um, Lord, that uh, you would use me as a tool to uh, impart what you would uh, have us to learn this morning. Uh, so we just commit this to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so before we, we really uh, start to dig in, um, I'd like to just go through the portion and make a few, uh, just touch on a few different uh, words that um, I think would be helpful if we understood them a little better. Um, so first of all, uh, I know we've already looked at this a few times uh, as we've been studying this, but uh, they have been shipwrecked on the island of Melita. Me Melita is uh, what we call in modern-day Malta. Um, it's roughly 600 miles uh, due west of the island of Crete, which was where they had last been at port. Um, it's also about 75 miles due south of the island of Sicily, which is right off the tip of Italy. Um, very, very small little island. Um, so that's where they've been shipwrecked. Um, and it says in verse 2, um, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. Um, so I think it would be helpful for us this morning to look at the word barbarous. Um, because the word barbarous does not necessarily, uh, in, in the time that this was written, did not mean the same thing that we use it for today. Um, this is the definition given by Webster. Number one, a man in his rude, savage state, an uncivilized person. Number two, a cruel, savage, brutal man, one destitute of piety or humanity. But the third definition is a foreigner. The Greeks and Romans denominated most foreign nations barbarians, and many of these were less civilized than themselves or unacquainted with their language, laws, and manners. But with them, the word was less reproachful than with us. So I think the first two definitions are what we typically think of when we read the word barbarian. Um, but again, it's the third definition there that I'd like to draw your attention to. Um, it simply meant a foreigner at the time, and specifically someone who could not speak the same language. Um, it was used much less reproach reproachfully uh, by the Romans. Um, the Greek word that barbaro or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, barbarians is, is translated off of is barbaros, and it specifically refers to sp uh, speaking in unintelligible um, sounds. Um, so the Romans would use that word to refer to anyone who did not speak Greek or Roman. So actually, technically, pretty much most of the Jews would have been referred to as barbarians at the time. Most Jews, or many Jews, did not speak Greek or Roman and were outside of that Greek and Roman culture and society. And if we compare scriptures, uh, that definition holds true. Uh, the word barbarian is used a few times uh, in scripture. Um, chronologically, the first time that it's used is in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And if we turn over to that portion, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 11 uh, reads, Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice... I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. So this is talking about uh, speaking in unknown tongues, and you can see the word barbarian is being used simply as someone who does not make any sense to you. Um, so again, that confirms the, the meaning of the word as someone who's unintelligible rather than someone who's anything derogatory. Um, the second time that the word barbarian is used in the New Testament chronologically 
uh, is a really interesting one. If you go back to our portion in uh, Acts 28 and then just turn one page over to the first uh, chapter of Romans, um, Romans chapter 1, verse 14, this uh, portion was written probably somewhere in the range of 8 to 10 years before uh, Paul actually traveled to Rome or came in contact with the uh, barbarians on Malta. Uh, but Romans 1.14 reads, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So it's very interesting to note that um, not only did Paul not necessarily have a negative uh, connotation on people that he would refer to as barbarians, he was actually indebted to them. Um, the word that we get uh, I am from actually carries the meaning of existence. So Paul says, I am a debtor. I'm e I exist because I am in debt to these people. So it's not just like Paul was owed them money or they had done some small service. Paul says he owed his life to these people. And obviously, Paul's life, just as our lives, are ultimately in God's hand. But God had used people from different classes. He'd used foolish and wise Greeks. He'd used foolish and wise barbarians to reach out and to minister to the Apostle Paul in the past. And we see him again using the barbarians on the island of uh, Malta to reach out and to minister and to give aid to the Apostle Paul uh, and to uh, those who are with him. Uh, the, the third time that uh, the word is used in the New Testament is here in our portion in Acts. And then the last time uh, is found in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. So this was written after Paul had uh, journeyed uh, to Rome while he was in prison, in prison there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 3 and verse 11, or we'll read from verse 9 for context. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him, after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, Paul is mitigating these differences. He's saying the focus is not on these things. The focus is on Jesus Christ and the relationship that all people, no matter what their racial or cultural background is, that we all hold, we who are saved, all hold Christ in common and the work that he did, and that's what matters, not uh, these differences. Um, so again, all of that to say, when we read the word barbarian here in Acts, Acts 28, don't think of, you know, Conan the Barbarian dressed in skins with a sword that's five times too large for him. Um, these are simply people who are outside of the uh, prevalent uh, highest culture, the Greek and Roman culture of the time, um, and who did not sp speak uh, Greek or Latin. Um, uh, one other word that uh, might need, need a little bit of uh, clarifying here. It's not something we uh, use often or pretty much at all anymore is the word flux. What on earth is flux? So barbarian is a word that the meaning has changed over the years. Flux is a word that we've simply replaced. Um, so a bloody flux is just an old English word for dysentery. Um, bloody means it, it has uh, internal ble uh, bleeding involved in it. 
So it was a very severe case of dysentery, which was extremely dangerous at the time. A lot of people died from dysentery. Um, all right, so moving on, um, the book, uh, or, or the chapter uh, 28 of, of, of the book of Acts uh, can be broken down, I think, into, into three sections. That's how I broke it down anyway. Um, the first is uh, verses 1 through 10, um, which is what recounts the uh, stay of Paul on the island of Melita. The second section uh, is from verse 11 to 16, which recounts Paul's travel from Melita to Rome. And the final section is uh, verse 17 to the end of the chapter, which recounts Paul's actual time in Rome itself. And hopefully we'll be able to look at uh, the first two of those sections. Um, but again, we'll see, uh, we'll see how the Lord leads here. Um, so starting in verse 1, we'll just work our way systematically through says, and when they were escaped, they knew that the island was called Melita. Um, so the important, uh, an, an important fact here is that um, this is actually a fulfillment of a promise that Paul had made, uh, I'm sorry, a promise that the Lord had made to Paul. Um, we find that in verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 26, um, where Paul is telling the crew of the ship that he was on that the Lord had told this to him. He said, "Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. So this was not any island. It was a certain island, a specific place that God had for uh, the ship to land, for Paul to be. And so God has guided the ship through the storm. Um, he has, uh, the Lord commanded the winds and the seas when he was here on his ministry. He is still able to do that. Obviously, the sailors had no control over where the ship would go. It says in, in chapter 28 that, they couldn't control the ship, so they just let it drive before the storm. Um, so God has directed their ship uh, specifically to this island, to the island of Malta. Um, and I believe it's, it's because God had a, an appointment, a ministry here for the Apostle Paul to do. Um, so then moving on in verse 2, um, it says that the barbarians of Malta, the second-class citizens of Rome, um, the, the bar barbarous people showed us no little kindness for they kindled a, a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And so the, the Miletans, uh show Paul and the crew of the ship just a fantastic sense of hospitality in taking in these men who have nothing. Their ship has been wrecked. They ha literally have the clothes on their back and uh, the a Maltese just take the uh, these people in. They show them kindness. They warm them. Um, this reminded me of a portion, uh, one of the Lord's parables. If you could turn over in your Bible to uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke ch chapter 10, this is, I'm sure, a familiar parable to all of us. And we will begin in verse 25, Luke 10, 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. 
And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A, a certain, or actually, you know what, just for the sake of time, we won't read the whole story, but if we skip down to the, to the uh, end of this, um, of course, this is the story of the Samaritan who uh, took in the, the Jewish man who had been robbed. But if we skip down to verse 36, it says, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go thou and do likewise. Um, so again, the, the answer, the, the question that the Lord is answering is, Who is my neighbor? Um, the Lord had told the lawyer uh, to, if he wanted to inherit eternal life, he had to fulfill the requirements that he had just laid out, to love the Lord his God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor. And, of course, the lawyer trying to justify himself says, who's my neighbor? Who do I need to show this unconditional love to in order to meet this requirement? And, of course, the answer is to all men, even men who are traditionally your enemies. And so just going, thinking back, taking the scenario and moving it about 60 years into the future to the island of Malta, how would you rate the reaction, the actions of the Maltese uh, when they took in the, the crew of the ship? I would rate them very highly, right? No, no reward. They just take these men in. They show them love. Now, does this mean that the Maltese were saved? Absolutely not. There's two halves of that equation, right? You have to love your neighbor as yourself. You also have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so just as the lawyer fell short of the requirements of the law, just as we fall short all the time, the Maltese fell short. And as a result... The Maltese needed a savior. They needed someone to make up that difference, someone to cover their sins. Um, and I can't help but wondering, is that why the Apostle Paul was sent to the island of Melita? You have here a group of people who are ready to go out and to, to love strangers unconditionally, and yet they needed salvation. They still needed the gospel to be preached to them in order to be saved. And Paul is sent to a certain island. He is sent to the Maltese, um, of course, bearing the message of the gospel. Um, so if we turn uh, back from, from uh, at, uh, Luke 10 to Acts 28... Moving down to uh, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And just, just reading through these verses, the first thing that stuck out to me here is what Paul is doing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really profound to think, and here's the Apostle Paul, who's one of the greatest church planters who's ever lived. He's a man who was used by God to jumpstart uh, the message of the gospel into the first century world. Um, he's a preacher. He's a teacher. And here he is, shipwrecked 
on an island with people who are taking care of his needs. I'm sure he's just as wet and cold and tired and in need of rest as the other members of the crew. And we have no reason to think from the context that the Maltese were neglecting the fire, that the fire was going out because it wasn't being tended by the Maltese. And yet Paul chooses, rather than sitting and resting next to the fire, to go out and to serve not only his fellow shipmates and his friends that are aboard the ship, but the sailors and even his captors by going out and gathering a bundle of firewood, gathering wood, working, and laying it on the fire. And it's, it's just challenging to me to think, what, wh- is that our reaction? When we have opportunity to serve God in a way that's not necessarily within our gifting, when, when you're a, a, a teacher or a preacher of God's word, and you have opportunity to serve someone practically, even when you're tired, do we take advantage of that? And if you're someone who it's easy to to just jump in and serve someone practically and physically and meet their needs, and yet the opportunity comes to preach the gospel or the opportunity comes to open God's word and to say, here's what God's word says. Let me teach you from it. Do we take advantage of that? Are we willing to be used of God in whatever way he sees fit to use us? Because it's just a, a tremendous challenge to me in what the Apostle Paul does here. Um, So as Paul is gathering this bundle of sticks, there's a snake in there. Now there's a lot of, doing some research on this, there's a lot of speculation on how this actually happened, how it looks like he's gathering individual sticks and somehow a snake ends up in there. How did the snake end up in there? Why did it not bite him until he puts the wood on the fire? We don't know for sure. Maybe the snake was on a piece of wood. It didn't feel threatened until it felt the heat of the fire. Um, It's it's also winter. It's cold. The crew were cold. The snake could have been lethargic because of the cold. Snakes are cold-blooded. And then when it feels the heat of the flame and that revives it, it could have gotten angry, obviously, and, uh, and bitten the Apostle Paul. But the important thing is that as Paul is laying the fire onto the the wood onto the fire, um, the snake does get angry and strikes the Apostle Paul. And he should have been killed by this or at least seriously uh, injured by it. Uh, It says in verse 2, and when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hanging on his hand. So this this is a poisonous snake. This is not something that you just shrug off. And yet... Paul's reaction is is pretty fantastic in that he really doesn't seem to have a reaction, right? He he shakes the snake off into the fire and just goes about his business. He doesn't seem at all disturbed by the fact that he should be in deadly danger from the snake. Um, And he doesn't even seem to have a huge reaction over the fact that the Lord preserves him through this. Um, Remember, the Lord has just preserved the Apostle Paul through a storm that should have killed him. And the Lord has made a promise to Paul that he is going to go to Rome to preach the gospel. And so it's, it's just, again, a, a tremendous challenge seeing Paul's faith, his steadfastness, his confidence in the Lord, um, and not letting uh, the situation um, rattle him or, or get to him, just his confidence in the Lord uh, and in his plan. But if you could uh, turn back in your Bibles to... Mark chapter 16. 
Mark chapter 16 and verse uh, 15 we'll read from. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And so again, we, we see Paul just resting in that promise of the Lord. God had a plan and a purpose for Paul, and that plan and purpose was not done. And as a result, Paul knew that God would protect him and preserve him through whatever came. Um, not that Paul, again, never got discouraged or, or never was fearful. Um, multiple times as we read through these, these last few chapters of, of uh, Acts, we, we read phrases when the Lord is speaking to Paul like, fear not, or take courage, or Paul was strengthened or took courage, meaning that before that happened, he was feeling weak. He was lacking courage. So the, Paul, the Apostle Paul was human, and yet he also, um, he also had just a tremendous confidence and assurance in the Lord and what he would do. Um, but looking uh, back in Acts 28 to the reaction that the uh, Maltese have, it says in verse 4, and when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffer suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit, they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. So, you know, not to discount what, what the Maltese, what their reaction is, but their, their immediate reaction is, Something bad has happened to this man. Therefore, some divine sense of vengeance must be falling on Paul to, uh, to give punishment for the horrible sins that this man, the horrible crimes that this man must have done. Um, and, you know, God will, at times, use situations, will use physical calamities to... Punish evildoers and to get the attention of those who are resisting his will. Um, one fantastic example of that is back in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah. Uh, God commanded Jonah to preach the gospel um, to the Assyrian nation, to Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria. And Jonah did not want to do that. And as a result, he fled from the Lord, as if that's something you can really do. It's, it's just a, a, a crazy statement. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Um, and and it's, it's just very similar, uh, very interesting, the, the similarities to this uh, passage in that there's a storm, and then after the storm, there is some sort of animal which is involved, a snake here and, and a giant fish in, in Jonah. But the Lord used the storm and, and the fish in the Old Testament in, in uh, the book of Jonah to redirect Jonah 
and to get hold of Jonah's attention and say, I told you to do this. You're not doing it. Go do it. So God will use physical situations to, uh, again, get a hold of the attention or to punish evildoers. And yet the reaction of the Maltese is, I think, in, in many ways also very superstitious, right? Because God created nature, and he created snakes to bite people, bite anything, when they're threatened, right? And I think in many situations, even in most situations where things like that happen, it's the nature that God has created operating as it, as it operates. And that's not saying that God doesn't use the suffering or the situations like this uh, for a purpose, for his glory. We see that very clearly happening here in the book of Acts because when the Apostle Paul landed on, on Malta, he was just another wet, cold, bedraggled, shipwrecked, shipwrecked man, right? And now all of a sudden, he's standing there with a snake hanging onto his hand, which is some snakes will do that to work more venom into their prey. So he's, he's standing there with a snake hanging on his hand, and all of the Maltese are looking at him, saying, oh, look at that man. Look what he, he, must, he must be a really bad person. But it's pretty interesting that the, the swing that the Maltese have, right? Because one moment they're saying, look at this man. He must have done something horrible. And then uh, if we read a little farther um, in verse 6, Howbeit they looked when he should have uh, swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So again, just the superstition that we see here, because one, one minute they think he must be this horrible criminal, and the next minute they think, oh, he's so high above all of humanity that he's a god, that he can, of himself, you know, just overcome the, the, the power of this, of this snake. Um, and it's interesting to see the way God is uh, communicating his word here, because of the, the th there's very few details given to us, right? Because I think we know from the character of Paul that if, if he heard someone saying, I think you're a god, that he wasn't just going to sit there and say, okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. He was going to react very strongly to that. As a matter, I mean, we, we have an example of that back in, I believe it's Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. That's Acts chapter 15. That won't help me. Acts chapter 14 and verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent on his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb, who never had walked. And the same, Paul, and the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leapt up and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in the speech of Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And then uh, going down to verse 14, which when the apostle, apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? 
We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. So here in, in Acts 14, we have the reaction, what Paul's response was to someone's reacting to a miracle by thinking that he was a god. I mean, it's very interesting the details that are left out in, in uh, Acts, Acts 28. Um, because again, I, we, from, from Paul's character, I don't think Paul was just going to stand there and say, it's okay for you to think that I'm a god. He was going to say something about it. And yet that's not the focus here in, in uh, chapter 28 of Acts. So it's, it's just very interesting the details that aren't there. Um, moving forward in, in verse 7 of our portion in Acts 28, it says, In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. It came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux or dysentery, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So again, going back to the, the details that aren't here, Publius takes them in, takes Paul in specifically, and we don't know why. Is this just normal Maltese hospitality? Does Publius think that Paul is a god? Has Paul responded to the Maltese thinking that he is a god? Um, but pu multi uh, Publius does take them in, um, and after three days, Paul discovers that Publius's father is, is very sick. Um, if we go back um, to that portion we were looking at in uh, the end of, of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, and that's Luke. I keep going to the wrong thing. Mark 16, verse 18. We read the first half of the verse, but we didn't we didn't lay this read the second half. It says, And they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So here in one verse, we have two things which happen in the Gospel of Acts, chapter 28. We have the snake, whose poison did not affect Paul at all, and we have the healing of, of the sick. Um, and I'd like to, to draw your attention to the context that this is given in. Um, when the Lord is giving these commands and this, uh, this, these promises to his apostles, to his disciples, he says, unto, he says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every preacher. So these miracles that God has promised are taking place within the context of the preaching of the gospel. And if you study throughout scripture, miracles were always in direct relation to the preaching of the gospel. When the Lord ministered on this earth, when he, uh, when he did miracles, they were done as signs to prove his authenticity and to make an avenue to preach the gospel. It says when he went um, into his own uh, home area where he had grown up, um, and the people... They wouldn't listen to his preaching because they, their reaction was, isn't this just Jesus, the son of the carpenter? It says that, um, that, Paul, that, that the Lord was not able 
to do um, it says that he could not do no he could do I'm sorry he could do no mighty works there that's in Mark 6 5 and so when the people would not hear the Lord's preaching the Lord did not do many miracles if you think of the apostles when they when they uh, did miracles in Acts chapter 3 when uh, Peter and John uh, it records them healing the lame man on the steps of the temple they heal the lame man and then they immediately go and preach the gospel to the Jews who see the miracle being done. And so again, I think, I think from um, the context of Scripture as a whole, um, we can infer that it's, it's probably very, very likely that in the three months that the P- Apostle Paul was on the island of Melita, he probably preached the gospel. And yet again, I think it's very interesting that we don't have that specifically recorded here. So I was asking myself, wh- why, what is the purpose of that? Why are details of miracles given? Why are we given all of this information on how they got to the island of Malta? And yet, what in our minds is that the preaching of the gospel might be the most important thing is not recorded here. And I think that's because of, of the focus of uh, the last excuse me, the focus of the last few chapters of the book of Acts. Back in chapter 21, the Apostle Paul was first arrested um, because the Jews were, were angry at him, really. Um, so he was first arrested, and there in, uh, I believe it's chapter 20, was where the Lord promised Paul that he would go preach the gospel at Rome. And from that point on, the whole focus of the, the book of Acts is leading us toward Rome, right? The Apostle Paul is tried again and again by different people. Um... He appeals to Caesar. They can't figure out what to charge him with because he didn't do anything wrong. But because he's a Roman citizen and he appealed to Caesar, he had to go to Caesar. So they sent him to Rome. But then along the way, we have this, this side channel, right? He's, he's going to Rome. This is the focus, the end point of the book of Acts. And yet we have this diversion. It's very interesting, and I, again, I don't... We're not going to have time to, to get into the next six verses here. But the journey, we'll look at this next week, when, when the uh, Apostle Paul leaves Malta and journeys to Rome, the journey is safe and it is very quick. It only takes a few days for them to sail from Malta to Rome and to get to Rome itself. And the Lord protects them and gives them favorable wind through some very dangerous places to sail in the ancient world. And yet, on the, on the journey from Israel, from Caesarea, to Malta, they had no good weather. They left Caesarea, and it, sa- it says they faced contrary winds. They had to sail around the I- some of the islands because the wind was contrary. They sailed slowly for many days because the wind was contrary. And then they land finally at Fair Havens in Crete, and they want to get to Phoenicia, which... Uh, called today Phoenix. It's uh, on the tip of, of Crete. 
um, just a short distance away, and they want to get there to, to be able to winter. And the Lord allows them to set sail and to be caught into this huge storm, which carries them 600 miles to the island of Malta. And he directs them to the island of Malta. Now, the Lord very easily could have given them fair winds to get to the island of Crete so that they could have sailed to Phoenicia without ever running into the storm. He could have stilled the storm in the first place so that they wouldn't be caught in it. And yet he didn't. He had this side place, this detour that he wanted the Apostle Paul to go on before he went to Rome, before he went to that final destination. Um, and so I'd like to challenge us this morning. What is, what is the, pra- what practically can we take away from this? What practically can we take away from the, the Apostle Paul being diverted from uh, the end game of Rome to the island of Malta for, th- for three months? Um, I think that sometimes the Lord has an island of Malta for us. He has something that maybe it's, it's not what we're focused on. Um, it's, it's not the place that we feel God is ultimately leading us to. It's not the, um, it's, it's not our goal. And yet God will sometimes redirect us to do something that we don't think is, is working toward that goal. Sometimes he has an island of people who are willing to serve but who don't know the truth. Sometimes he has a Publius who needs to see the practical power of God working to meet his needs. Sometimes he has a Julius who is the centurion who uh, Paul was, was uh, Julius was, was committed uh, to uh, bring Paul to Rome. Sometimes he has a Julius who needs to see Paul say, the God whose I am and who I serve is able to deliver us from the storm, and he needs to see that actually happen. He needs to see God's power in his life. So when God redirects us, when he takes us from the course that we think he has us on and brings us somewhere else for a season, don't be discouraged because God has a purpose in it, even if we don't see it at first. One, uh, one last story before we, we finish up uh, this morning. Uh, as as uh, my dad brought up at the prayer time, um, recently I've been uh, going out doing some uh, door-to-door evangelism work with um, Justin, Joy's fiance. And uh, the week of the 19th, uh, Justin and I were texting back and forth early in the week. Um, we are planning on going out during the week, and um, we decided we would go out on Friday afternoon. Um, some of you also may know I'm, I'm starting a part-time job at Home Depot, and I had to go in to do some final paperwork um, on Thursday. And uh, Thursday, I... Um, I went in, and they, they asked me if I could come in or told me I needed to come in uh, Friday afternoon for orientation. Um, orientation went till uh, 4 o'clock. We were going to go out and uh, do some work in Waterbury, um, and dusk was about 5 o'clock, maybe a little after 5. Um, and it was a 
not a wealthy area of Waterbury, not necessarily the place you want to be walking around after dark. Um, so Justin and I decided to, um, to call that off, and we ended up going out uh, last Sunday instead. Um, but after orientation, I had sat down, when, when I had first go gone in, I had sat down next to uh, a fellow um, who was also taking the class, and I'd never met this guy before, didn't know anything about him, other than uh, at the break, halfway through the, uh, through the orientation, I found out that he was a new dad. Um, but after orientation ended, I'm walking out the door, I was the last person to leave the room, and he stopped me at the front door and asked me if I could give him a ride home. Um, he said his car had broken down a few weeks before, um, he hasn't been able to get it fixed, it's pretty much gone, and um, could I possibly give him a ride home? So I said, all right, I can do that. Um, got in the car, was able to have a good conversation with him on the way home. Turns out he's a, a veteran, got out of the service, has had a hard time finding work, been kind of bouncing around a bit. Um, but 11 months ago, found out that he was going to be a dad. Um, uh, went into the construction field because he was making more, more money than what he was currently doing. And then three weeks ago, his car died. And so he picked up this job at... Home Depot to try to make ends meet doing uh, a night shift, doing freight. And so drive home with him, um, you know, just being able to, in a very, very small way, meet a need that this gentleman had in not having transportation at the, at the time. Um, and then when we got home, was able to say, I'll be praying for you. Could I give you a track? This, this uh, tells you a little bit about the Lord Jesus. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. He's going to be working night shifts. I'm going to be working day shifts. But God, rather than having me go out for two or three hours on, on Friday afternoon, had me take 15 minutes out of my day to drive a guy from work to his home down the street in Meriden and to give him a track to tell him I would be praying for him. That doesn't mean that God's plan long-term for sharing the gospel changed. Justin and I still went out on Sunday and were able to do door, to door work here just down the street in New Haven. And it was really a time that, that was a tremendous blessing to me, to Justin, and uh, um, we were just able to have some, some tremendous conversations with different people. Um, and yet God redirected us for Friday evening to reach somebody who wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise. Um, so just look look for the Maltas. Look for the places where the Lord is directing you away from what you think he wants you to be doing and look for those small things, those things that are off to the side that he would have you to do. And let's let's try to be faithful to, to see those opportunities and to take advantage of them. Um, so let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for, again, for your word, which is truth, for the chance we've had to just look at a, a few different things from your word this, this morning. Um, Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, for the ministry that you gave him. Um, Lord, the ministry that you would give him in Rome, for the ministry that you gave him um, for three months on the island of Malta. And Lord, we just pray that um, 
when you bring people into our lives, when you direct us to different places and to meet different people, Lord, that we would recognize those opportunities to show through our actions um, the love of Jesus Christ and to show through our words, um, to share through our words the gospel, the truth, and the redemption that you have uh, made available to us. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would be with us, that you would uh, keep us safe as we travel home uh, this afternoon, and uh, just that you would keep us uh, in your hand this week. We commit this to you in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen.